Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And that those people would then go out to their communities and spread the gospel throughout Haiti. God, we thank you for Sidor. Pray that you would provide for them and for the school and everything that they need. God, we thank you for this offering that we are about to receive. We ask that you would use it for your glory in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, for grace to try. 
Bible, open it to Romans chapter 12, please. And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use one of the ones that you can find in the seat in front of you. We've been working our way through Romans, and we find ourselves at a transition in this great letter. As you're finding Romans chapter 12, let me just mention and just add on to what Springer said earlier about uh, our midweek fellowship new midweek fellowship starting this, a new block starting this Wednesday. We're going to be focusing on prayer, and I'm going to be teaching a short devotion on prayer. And then, rather than spending most of our time talking about prayer, we're going to actually pray together as a church. Uh, I, along with the other pastors and elders, have been a, a bit chastened and convicted as we look at the life of our church. We see lots of wonderful things happening, lots of fruit, lots of evidences of God's grace. But one area where I think we, quite frankly, just need to, something we need to do more of is to humble ourselves in corporate prayer and to come together as a body and pray for one another, pray for God's grace among us, pray for a moving of His Spirit in our church and in, and in our city and in other churches. And so I, I want to encourage you to come this Wednesday and for the next six Wednesdays and, and as, we, as we focus on a time of, of corporate prayer. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 is our text this morning. I'm going to read it in just a moment. But we have been, as, as I'm sure you're aware, been working through this great letter of Romans for quite some time. Up to this point, chapters 1 through 11 have been, I don't know if you've caught this or not, but intensely theological, very, very doctrinal. In fact, some of the deepest doctrine in all of the Bible is contained in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And chapter 12 is a pivot. In chapter 12, Paul then, uh, he says, therefore, that's really how he begins chapter 12, and therefore is a conjunction, conjunction, junction, what's your function? You remember children that grew up in the 70s, Schoolhouse Rock? He's saying that because of everything that I have said in verses 1 through, or chapters 1 through 11, in light of this doctrine... In light of this thorough explanation of the good news of what God has done to save a people, in light of that, this then is how you should live. So chapters 12 really through 16, and then and 16 is primarily just kind of him saying goodbye and a few instructions, but chapters 12 through 15 is now the practical application of all of the doctrine that he has laid out in Chapters 1 through 11. So we've said this often. This is a pattern in the New Testament. It's certainly a pattern in Paul's letters. Is that Paul begins with the, the indicative of the gospel. And that word indicative is a grammatical term that means an announcement of what God has done. 
And after the indicative comes the imperative, how we should live. And so Paul, in virtually all of his New Testament letters, and certainly in Romans, starts with, for 11 chapters now, an announcement of what God has done. And in light of what God has done, then this is how we must live. It's important that we understand that order because that's at the very heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not, this is what you must do and then God will meet you and do this. It's the other way around. It's the good news of the free grace of God's sovereign grace, which says this is what he has done to save a people for himself, not to make salvation possible, but to actually save them. And then in light of that great truth, this is how they should live. And so we begin now with a great transition. I think the first two verses of Romans 12 are a kind of, a kind of paradigm, a lens, a manifesto for Christian living. And so we're going to read the first two verses, and then, and then I, I see three truths that I want to draw out of this, these two verses. And these three truths are just recitations of exactly what Paul says. So I got really creative and I, my points are exactly what the Bible says. <laughs> Let me read Romans, Romans 1, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, let's pray. Lord, help us understand these. For many of us, these are familiar verses. Some of us may be reading them for the first time. Lord, help us all wherever we are. Meet us where each of us are, Lord, by the sweet sovereignty of your Holy Spirit that comes and guides us into truth, shows us who Christ is, convicts us of our sin, beckons us to you. Lord, do that. Speak now, Lord, through me. Use me despite myself to bless these people. For my brothers and sisters in this room, encourage them, convict us, wound us, and heal us through your word. For my friends in this room who don't yet know you, Lord, I plead with you, Lord, you alone can give life, give life liberally today. In this room, I pray so that people can see Jesus and be saved. Do this all, Lord, I pray for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I see three exhortations for the Christian life. Exhortation number one, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what he says midway there through verse 1. And what he says, and he qualifies this exhortation, this command really in verse 1, to give yourselves. And he says this in light of everything that he said up to this point. In fact, that's what the beginning of verse 1 says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So, Everything, therefore, everything that has come before, brothers, by the mercies of God. In, in, in a sense, we can summarize his explanation of God's work of redemption through Jesus in chapters 1 through 11 as the mercy 
of God in action. And Paul is saying, in light of that, in light of what God has done, and so let's, let's, just remember, let's just summarize briefly what, God, what Paul has said God has done. Remember, the, the whole point of the book of Romans is that all of us, whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are religious or unreligious, all of us stand equally needy before a holy God. None of us have our own righteousness. And so all of us come guilty, separated, separated from God because he alone is holy and righteous, in need of somebody who will go between God and us. And that's the good news of the gospel that Paul begins to outline in chapter 3. He says that God has sent forth his son Jesus to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins so that all those that would have faith in Jesus, which is a gift that God gives when he saves a person, those that would have faith in Jesus, not as a work that they bring to the table, but as a gracious gift of God to those whom he saves, those who have faith in what Jesus has done to bear the wrath of God for his people, extinguish it, absorb it, because as we read earlier, Jesus is sinless and holy, and extinguish and satisfy God's punishment and rise again in victory, those who have faith in Jesus will be reconciled to him. And even though, this is chapter 8, even though they will still face troubles in this life, God promises that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there is then no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus, despite the lingering trials that we still face, and he will bring his people all the way home. That's... The, I know you've heard that before, and I know you know when I start getting on that, you say, oh, here he goes again. Well, guess what? We need to hear it week after week after week because we all suffer from the same dreaded disease. What is it? Gospel amnesia. The world knocks us in the head as soon as we leave this place and we forget stuff. And we need to be reprogrammed. More on that later by the Bible. And so this is what Paul is saying in light of what God has done. So friends, see the gospel. The gospel, if you're here for the first time, is not some behavior modification plan. It's not some moral imperative. It's the good news that you can't save yourself, but God saves you by giving you a new heart so that you can believe in Jesus who died for you and rose again in victory over all your enemies. That it, and so Paul is saying, in light of that, because if you see that and it's regenerated your heart, in light of that, in response to that, not so that you'll get that, but because that's true in your life, present your bodies, all that is within you, as a living sacrifice. And what does he qualifies it? Holy and acceptable. Some of us don't feel very holy in here. In fact, probably all of us don't. But if what Romans 1 through 11 is, has said is true, and certainly it is, then the righteousness that Christ acquired through his sinless life, sacrificial death, 
victorious resurrection, reigning ascension is ours. It's imputed to us. It's given to us. And we, even though we may still struggle with sin, we are now righteous before God and acceptable, which is a way to say that part of the Christian life now is to be set apart to please God, not to continue, even though we may wrestle with the residue of sin, not to continue walking in the ways in which we once walked. And then he says, this is how he concludes verse 1. He says, this is your spiritual, your spiritual worship. Now, I love the ESV version of the Bible. I think it's very helpful and very faithful. But I, this word spiritual, there's more to it than that. In fact, if you're using a, a King James version of the Bible, it, it may say your reasonable service or your reasonable worship. I think that that word captures the meaning here a little bit better of what's going on in the original language. It's, he's saying, it is your reasonable, rational, spiritual, meaning inward, your reasonable, rational response to the mercy of God. So, so this is a, this, we need to biblically understand what salvation is. Salvation is not merely a set of principles. And by the way, this is how much of American sort of religious life thinks of spirituality, that God is there to give us some principles whereby we can navigate through life in a more optimal way so that it will help us live more fulfilling lives here and now. Certainly, if we follow the Bible, there's, there's a blessedness that comes with it. But if we follow the Bible, for some of us, it may lead us into giving our lives away and being very uncomfortable. That's a misinterpretation. What Paul is saying here is that in light of all that God has done for you, salvation is not just this exchange to give you some principles for better living, but it is the salvation, the bringing back to life, and the lordship, the ownership of Jesus over your life. So in light of that, think it through. That's what this word spiritual or reasonable means. Think it through, then live for him. Give all of yourself to him because it's reasonable, it's rational. It makes sense in light of what the gospel has done for you. That's what that, that sentence is saying. And so just a brief application here before we move on to the second point which again is just straight from scripture, is to just think all, uh, uh, the Christian life, it's not a compartmentalized life. It's, it's, all, it's all of my life is his. In light of his mercy, I give everything that I have to him, set apart for him, which is my rational, reasonable, spiritual response to him. So everything I have is his, my my money, my, my vocation, my gifts, my family, my house, my children, my marriage, my singleness, my grief, my trials, my blessings. Everything we have in some way is part of God's providence in our life, even the difficulties we have, to show that as we walk through those things, the surpassing worth of God. So do you see how, how seeing this all-encompassing idea of salvation and how then we are left here on this earth for a little while to live out our salvation actually is the only plausible explanation for living life because now 
God's sovereignty is not dependent on whether or not I get good things in this life, but everything in my life, even the temporary trials that I go through, are part of what I bring to him to live as a living sacrifice to him so that through my life, he might put on display something that is better than temporal blessings in these 80 years. Do you see that? I'm preaching pretty good. I don't know if you're getting it or not, but I'm preaching pretty good. Do you see? I mean, this is not rocket surgery. <laughs> science. <laughs> rocket science and brain surgery mix them together. This is not rocket surgery. But you do have to stare at this to get this, right? So everything, every, everything, present all of you to all of God because of the gospel, because of his mercy. It's the rational, reasonable thing to do for the Christian. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, which is my second point creatively. Do not be conformed to this world. Friends, we, we do not live in a neutral world. We don't, this world is not a blank canvas. It demands that we take sides. It demands allegiance. There is no DMZ. There's no demilitarized zone on planet Earth. You cannot live in a spiritual Switzerland. You must declare allegiance. Whether you realize you're declaring allegiance or not, you are. Listen, listen, let me just read you a sampling. We're going to read a lot of scripture. You may just jot these down to refer back to later and think deeply about them. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Hang with me. This is the word of God. Every now and again, I'll read these little articles and ministry websites where it says you shouldn't read a lot of scripture to your people because they don't have good attention spans. And I want to punch my computer screen when I read junk like that. That's exactly what we need. Not cute little stories about my dogs or my children. Let me shake it off a little bit. I just got, I just got angry for some reason. I don't, know what, I don't know why. I just, I love you. I'm, I'm not mad at you. Okay, let me, read, let me read you a sampling of scriptures that make this very clear. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Remember the point we're making is that there's a world out there that demands allegiance. There's an enemy. We're in a war. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is a description of the person before they come to faith in Jesus. This is a description of everybody in which you once walked, listening to this description, following the course of this world. Think of the culture that we're in. This world as being like a stream, a riptide that pulls you deeper and deeper out into its clutches, following the prince of the power of the air. When we see the word prince in the Bible, we're sort of automatically programmed to think that that might be referring to Jesus or some deity. In this context, he's referring to the given authority of the devil who's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A little bit later on in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is written not just to the Ephesians. It's written, it's captured by God's Holy Spirit, preserved through the centuries to be the word of God to all of God's people. The devil has schemes to destroy you, this church, and every believer on the face of the earth today. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds. Things that set themselves up against God, administered by the devil and his minions. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. One more, Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, just, just illustrating the starkness of these two sides, these two kingdoms and no in between. Verse 13, describing salvation, Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, not some neutral ground, not less than optimal living, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There are only two spiritual eternal addresses for every human soul. Do you see this? And there's this world that is that is fighting under the control of Satan to destroy us. That's why at the end of the gospel, I believe it's in Luke, Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter says to him before Peter denies him, he says, he says Peter, Satan has inquired of you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your strength will remain. And this isn't always very obvious. Let's not get the impression that the devil jumps out behind from behind a bush with a red suit on and horns and a pitchfork saying, I'm here to destroy your life. That's never happened to me. No, Paul says, and he's talking about the false apostles that were opposing his ministry. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 and 15, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. If you have ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, which is about the subtlety of spiritual warfare, you will understand that the devil doesn't jump out from behind rocks and say, boo, and tell us that he's Satan. He hides behind things that seem like they might be helpful or right. That's why we need wisdom. We'll get into that in a second. But friends... The point is, is that we are in a battle. And, and af after having read all of the scriptures, I don't want to psych you out. I want you to know, I want you to be sober-minded and aware of this intense battle. But I also want you to be emboldened because there are many instances in the Bible, in Job for one, at the end of the Bible in Jude, where it says that Satan, and I'm paraphrasing here, is on a leash and he can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. 
So even this evil, do you see the means of God by which he uses to bring about the end? Friends, he even allows the world and the course of this world to touch us so that it might wean us from ourselves, wake us up, be like ammonia underneath our nostrils so that we will look away from the world to God. So even the the devil is our enemy, God uses him for his good purposes to bring about. He's like a nail that God drives in the wood of our souls to fasten us. That's what trial and tribulation in this world is like. God uses it as a tool to fasten us to himself. So have confidence, but be sober-minded. Paul's exhortation is for us not to be shaped by the world. Don't let it bend you into its image. Don't let it slowly and imperceptibly lure you away from giving yourself fully to God. Now let's just pause before we we look at this last point that he makes in the second half of verse 2. Just ask ourselves, consider, we could spend a lot of time just considering ways that we are prone to this. But what ways are you, are we, drinking from the filthy fountains of this world? And right now, don't like, don't, don't think, oh, oh yeah, Brad's about to talk about Netflix. And oh yeah, he's going to get them young people because they're so carnal. Friends, uh, uh, come on, let, right now, let's just humble ourselves and let's just, let's just confess, maybe not verbally right now, let, let, let me do the talking, you, you do the but, but let's just confess that we are all, we're all, we all got some, we all got some mud on us, right? We do, man. And we're going to talk about what is next. His next exhortation is how we fight that. But friends, I mean, we, we live... I think as Americans, there's this strange dichotomy to American Christianity. And in some ways, it's so fruitful and so full of resources and God's grace and fruitfulness. But yet, we, we are carnal people. Man, we, we are so prone to drink from the fountain of this world. I mean, the world, you know this, this, this the political thing, fake news, hashtag fake news, and don't, don't. Don't ascribe that to any particular leader, particular party. That's the world. It's it's drawing you into, it's drawing us into discouragement, despair, carnality, sin, a whole host of things. And let's just, and I'm just, I'm I prayed this morning before I came out here that God show me, show us by your Holy Spirit, not just in a moment, but over the course of this week as we consider this text, open our eyes to ways that we, by your Holy Spirit, show us ways in our life that we are drinking from the filthy fountains of this world. And then let me fight it with the power of verse two that we're gonna get into in a second. Friends, that's all of us, right? We're all, that's all of us. And so what does Paul say in response to that? He says, what's his exhortation? His negative one is don't do this, but then his positive one here is the second part of verse two, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's, that's exhortation number three. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern 
what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So God has deemed for his glory to save us by his mercy and not to just zap us into heaven or make us immediately perfect in our sanctification, even though we are completely righteous before him, but to leave us here in this life so that through a slow and oftentimes arduous and painful process of sanctification or transformation, becoming more like who we already are in Christ, that by that we would test, discern, grow in wisdom so that our lives would be a display so that we can choose, walk in the will of God, the way of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect, which then he uses the slow picture of our inch-by-inch sanctification for the rest of our lives after we are saved to be a picture so that our sanctification and the aroma that comes from it, he uses to draw other people to faith in Jesus so that he can put their lives on display and let them inch-by-inch become more and more like Jesus as they live on this earth. Do you see that? And he's deemed that that's the way that, he sh- that we should live. So he says, be transformed by the renewal of the mind. But what does that mean? What does he mean? He doesn't say much about how to renew your mind. And that's where we need to be careful Bible readers and piece together instruction from the whole Bible, from the rest of the Bible that fills in the blank. So I have three trajectories, three thoughts about how and what it means to transform, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. First is by his indwelling spirit. We need to know this truth, even if we don't necessarily feel it or aren't aware of it all the time. The spirit of God, when you become a Christian, the third person of the Trinity indwells us, takes up residence in the temple of our lives. So in the Old Testament, they would have buildings where where God's presence would dwell, and all of that was a kind of picture of the vessel, the, the temple of the Christian himself or herself. And so now in the New Covenant, God doesn't dwell in buildings or tents made by men, but in our very lives, and he dwells in us. This is what we read in Romans 8. Listen to Romans 8. Again, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Listen to it. Write it down. Dwell on it later. Romans 8, starting in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, meaning unbelievers. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and grace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God, before I read verse 9, let me pause there and just say that if you are in this room and you know yourself to be an unbeliever and you desire to become a Christian, it will not happen through your self-effort. This is the beginning of the understanding of the gospel rightly and biblically. You, in and of yourself, cannot change yourself to a point where you are acceptable to God. That's why the gospel's good news, because it's not this nebulous, shifting standard of some amount of righteousness or some amount of good deeds that you must do in order to all of a sudden please God. 
No, the gospel is the good news is that you can't do what's required of you, but God will do it for you by taking your dead heart, taking it out of your chest, spiritually speaking, and giving you a new heart and taking up residence in your life and making you alive. So right now, if you're sensing that, if you're sensing right now, don't be an American that just wants all good experiences. Part of salvation is despairing of yourself. And that's a good thing. We've been trained to think that, oh, don't make me feel bad. Don't make me feel bad. You better feel bad or you'll never feel good. That's the beginning of the gospel. If you're despairing of yourself right now, if you're feeling helpless, the Holy Spirit, I think, is backing you into the corner so that you will finally cry mercy. And that's life, friends. That's life. You can't please God. Only He can do in you and make you alive and give you Christ so that you can be in Him because the only one that has pleased God is Christ. And you need to be hidden in Him through faith that He must give you. You, but that's not the point I was going to make. All right, let's go back to verse 9. But that was, that was really good. <laughs> come on, man. Come on. Give it to me. Let's go, friends. Let's get to verse 9 here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Listen to this. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, it is dwelling in you. That's his point. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is biblically true of you if you are a believer, regardless of whether or not you feel like it. Let's learn to wean ourselves from the subject of feelings of despair. And see these things in the Bible and fasten ourselves to them. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, this is guaranteed, this next part. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will, not maybe, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I think that's referring to the end of the age resurrection. Meaning, if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you and he will bring you all the way home. And he puts in this spirit of sonship or daughtership. This is what he says a couple verses later in verse 15, Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's why physical adoption, we have many families in this church who have physically adopted children, and it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel because no child that is adopted chooses his parents. No child cooperates in the adoption and says, I'm going to pick you because I think I should be on your team. Friends, it's the other way around. We are crying in the crib of our own sin and God reaches down not because there's anything good in us, but simply because of his love with which he loved us and he adopts us. And he 
then he dwells in us and gives us his name. Now we are not just justified, not just some legal declaration of rightness before a holy God. We are now part of his family and we're grafted into Christ and Jesus lives in us. This is what Jesus says in the Gospels about the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. He says in John 14, starting in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, capital H, referring to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, listen to this, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 16, verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and it is God in us, drawing us to God, teaching us, instructing us, bringing us into an understanding of who he is until we reach that day where we come finally to him. Friends, let me pause here and just say this, that we in our culture are so pragmatic. We, we want to see things. We, we don't, we, we, if, if, if things aren't working for us, you know, we just, we just can only see the tree in front of us and we completely miss the greater force that God may be doing around us. Right now, I realize that there are people in this room who when we read very spiritual sounding verses like this, it's hard for you to get there. You can't identify with it because you don't necessarily feel it. And because of a thousand things that may be happening in your life, you feel distant from God. But let me tell you this, dear brother or sister, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are longing for him, this is true of you. Listen to this. Something is going on inside of you that cannot be stopped. There's a force, there's a grace, there's a presence of God, his Holy Spirit that resides in you whether you feel like it or not. And John puts it this way, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. I want you to fasten yourself to that right now. I want you to say it to yourself. I'm trusting in Jesus. He lives in me. He lives in me. And that, you need to know that. You need to believe that even if you don't feel it on Tuesday when your life goes to hell in a handbasket. So we're transformed by the renewal of our mind by understanding, fastening ourselves, getting the good doctrinal truth of his indwelling spirit. How else? By his transforming word. He not only gives us his spirit, he gives us the word that his spirit has written, which is his Bible, which is at work in us. We read this earlier. Listen, a few more verses. Hebrews 4, verse 12, we read it earlier. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Ah, this is, this is, this is a very encouraging verse. And we also thank God, this is Paul praying for the church at Thessalonica, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, you're receiving it right now, which you heard from us, you accepted it, 
not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Listen to this, whether you feel it or not. This is gonna, this is gonna happen to you this week, week. If you're a believer in Jesus, even if you're an unbeliever, I think God is drawing you. L- listen to what he says about the work of the word imperceptibly, which is at work in you believers. Now, what does that feel like? I mean, is it a heart murmur? Is it digestion? No, friends, this is a spiritual reality that we are not always aware of, and the Word of God, praise God for this, the Word of God is at work in you. This is like what Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, a little bit after that. He talks about the farmer who plants a field, and then he goes to sleep, and he wakes up the next morning, and he doesn't even know how it happened, but stuff is growing. When the word of God is brought to bear on our hearts, you sleep at night, you don't even know what's happening, and the spirit that's in you is taking the word that he wrote, and he's doing stuff, man. He's doing stuff. Is is anybody encouraged? Say amen. Amen. Jeez, come on. And then this is the, this is the, this is the, another verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the the verse that I think explains it all so well. But as for you, Paul, talking to a young man, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, listen to this description of the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. God is breathing through these human authors through the centuries to write down exactly what he intends them to write down. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, we, we are transformed in the renewal of our mind by the indwelling spirit and by the word that is at work in us. So let's pause before we, 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 we look at this last way that we're transformed. Let's just pause and just let me just encourage you. Are you taking in the Bible? This is not meant to be a scold or like, I'm not going to come beat you up for... You know, not reading your Bible as much as you should. I'm just, I'm, I'm coming alongside you as a distracted pilgrim with you on this journey to all that God wants us to be. And I just want to encourage us, take in God's word, friends. We have time. We have time. We do have time. We, 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 maybe you cut out a show. Maybe you get up 30 minutes earlier. But listen, you, your life may depend on it right now. Take in God's word. Take it in. Find a way. We just mentioned these men's Bible studies. Men traditionally have so much trouble applying themselves to the word. Come to one of these studies. Friends, come. And at least one day a week you're going to be staring at God's word apart from Sunday. And you'll come. But right now you must make a decision. And I'm praying that the spirit that dwells in you will create in you the discipline, the oomph, the drive to say no to Netflix, no to the game, no to that, no to this, all these things that may not be bad things in and of themselves,
ourselves, but are disguised as angels of light meant to clutter your mind, to keep you away from anything but coming to God's word. Do it, do it, do it. Find a way. You can do it. Come on, all the things that we can do, we can program our smartphones, we can make stuff happen, we can do all these things. Friends, don't turn into an immature, babbling child when it comes to figuring out a way to take in God's word. You can do it. And if you need help with that, I'm not here to scold you, man. If you need help with that, talk to a mature brother or sister. Talk to one of our pastors. We will help you. We will just think, we'll brainstorm with you. We will sit down with you, give you some tips. You can do it. Heaven and hell may hang in the balance as to whether or not you do it. Certainly your fruitfulness in the Lord will hang in the balance. And all of the clutter and the fake news, the fake spiritual news that the course of this world throws at you, there's no way that you can fight that apart from taking in God's word. And then finally, he does this transformation in our lives by his indwelling spirit, by his transforming word, and by his life-giving body, the church. Life and community. And by that, I don't just mean some nebulous, ambiguous group of Christian friends. I mean the inconvenient, awkward, ordinary, unspectacular life of a local church with a bunch of people who you don't necessarily choose to be with or who aren't necessarily like you, but who you have to kind of inconvenience yourself to be with. In that, think of, think of our life as a local church as being like a pot of soil that God plants the sapling of a Christian life in. Nothing can grow outside of that soil, and that's where the Christian life is to be lived, in the context of a local church. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body, I think he's talking about clearly the church there, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he's going to keep going, I'll keep reading, but I think the context here is not merely the universal body of Christ, meaning all Christians in the world, or all Christians in our city or in Columbus, but the specific group of people that God has given you to be in fellowship with in a prioritized way in the local church. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Think about that. You are who you are, where you are, with the people you are, according to God's choosing. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary... The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God, so what he's saying there is right now, if you're thinking, yeah, but it's hard to be part of this church because everybody seems squared away and I'm just, I'm just this person ravaged with all this stuff in my life. That's written for you. These people who you think are strong, by the way, they're not, but these people who you think are strong need you. These people who are more mature need you. They need to fasten their life to you so that they will get their eyes off of their own maturity and use their maturity for something other than themselves. And if you are weak and you got all this baggage and you think that there's no way you could fit into a church, that verse is for you. It's saying that you are necessary because God wants to put your life on display and use you and make you that person someday that you aspire to be for his glory. Friends, life together isn't always amazing. Paul gives a description of the local church which is so contrary to much of American church culture. Every church service, every small group meeting, every song, and certainly not every sermon is awesome. It's often awkward, unspectacular, and ordinary. And our addiction to everything being awesome is part of how we are conforming to this world. And the Bible calls us to this unspectacular, rugged, inconvenient life to wean us from ourselves fasten us to each other so that as we deal with one another in grace and mercy, we become more like Jesus who fastened himself to us. Do you think it was awesome all the time for Jesus to walk with these 12 knuckleheads in the Bible? But American Christians run from thing to thing, wanting a bigger room with bigger lights and a cuter preacher and all of these things, and they are storing up for themselves selfishness. They are fruitless, and they are of no good to the kingdom of God because their Christianity is all about them chasing experiences and never fastening themselves to broken people in the life of a regular, ordinary, unspectacular church. So how does he transform us? Man, it's just regular stuff. By understanding the doctrine of regeneration that God lives in you by reading the Bible together, by cutting out that show, by waking up 30 minutes early, by reading the Bible, and by doing life together with a bunch of other people who are messed up like we are. And then we come to Christ as living sacrifices, and we come to him on this first Sunday to the table. Listen, listen to what Peter says about then how we come as living sacrifices, fighting this world, desiring to be transformed so that we can be of some use. And by the way, all of this is for our joy. Don't, don't think that this isn't for our joy. It is. All of this, we won't take the time to spend talking about that, but all of this is more for our joy. And this is what Peter says about then as living sacrifices, we come to Jesus even to his table today on the first Sunday of February as we receive communion together. First Peter chapter two, verse four says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Doesn't that sound like living sacrifices all of our life? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So today, corporately, as the church, as believers in Jesus, we have the great privilege to renew our minds by coming to the table on this first Sunday of February and by receiving communion. And this is another means of grace that God gives us to remember these truths that we've dwelt on, to fasten our lives to them and to say, regardless of how I feel and regardless of what this week throws at me, this is true by the mercies of God. I give myself to you. And what are the mercies of God? The broken body of the Son, the spilled blood of Jesus on the cross so that all those that have faith in him would have the wrath of God absorbed and the righteousness of Jesus given and his victorious resurrection, which is ours, which now compels us to give all of ourselves to all of him. But we must do that thoughtfully, rationally. We must think about what we're doing because this world will pollute us and we must come to this table and renew our desire to live for God afresh today. Listen to what Thomas Cramner, he was an English archbishop during the time of the English Reformation and he wrote an exhortation which is still used in the Church of England today which I think is very good and I'm gonna pick up reading about halfway through. He says about how we should come to this table as living sacrifices, thinking about our reasonable response to God. He says this. It's a lengthy quote, but you can handle it. It's good. But if we are to share rightly in the celebration of those holy mysteries, meaning the work of God and the gospel, and be nourished by that spiritual food, we must remember the dignity of the ordinance, meaning the bread and the cup. I therefore call upon you to consider how the Apostle Paul exhorts all persons to prepare themselves carefully before eating of that bread and drinking of that cup. And we'll read about that in a second in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul exhorts us to prepare ourselves. For as the benefit is great, if with repentant hearts and living faith we receive the bread and cup, so is the danger great if we receive it improperly, not recognizing the Lord's body. In other words, just haphazardly coming, not thinking through by the mercies of God what he's done for me and his grace in my life. Judge yourselves, therefore, lest you be judged by the Lord. Examine your lives and the conduct by the rule of God's commandments, that you may perceive wherein you have offended and in what you have, left, have done or left undone, whether in thought, word, or deed, and acknowledge your sins before Almighty God. Friend, do that right now with full purpose of amendment of life, being ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done by you to others, and also being ready to forgive those who have offended you in order that you yourselves may be forgiven. And then, being reconciled with one another, come to the banquet of that most heavenly food. And if, in your preparation, 
you need help and counsel, then go and open your grief to a wise and understanding brother or sister and confess your sins. Receive spiritual counsel and advice to the removal of scruple and doubt, the assurance of pardon, and the strengthening of your faith. To Christ our Lord who loves us and washed us in his own blood and made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory in the church evermore. Through him, let us offer continually the sacrifice of praise, which is our duty and service. And with faith in him, listen to this, come boldly before the throne of grace and humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. That's how we come to the table. As living sacrifices, despairing of ourselves, fastening ourselves to the mercies of God, endeavoring to reconcile, to make amendments, to live for God this week, boldly to the throne of grace as living sacrifices. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a member of this church or part of a like-minded church that believes this gospel, you're welcome to this table. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not ready to do this. You shouldn't come and take this meal with us, not because we're trying to exclude you, but because we don't want you to go through the motions of something that you don't really believe. But if God is opening your heart right now and you want to speak to somebody more, more intimately one-on-one about what it means to follow Jesus, oh, find somebody, find me, find one of the pastors, find any brother, find any Christian that you know in this room and they'll be glad to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But let's come now to the table, not out of tradition, not out of church culture, but as living sacrifices, clinging to Christ. I'm going to pray, and the ushers are going to find their positions and be prepared to serve us. When you are ready, when your heart is prepared, you come to the table, receive the elements, and hold on to them, and then I will lead us to receive them together as a church family. Let's all stand together. Father, I pray that you'd take these words and use them for the good of these people, for the building up of your body, for the drawing of all those that you're calling to life, for the transformation of our individual lives into the image of Christ. May we feast upon Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Lord, feed us spiritually. Satisfy us with Christ as we come to this table. In Jesus' name.